Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You know what? Today's show is tops. You're going to hear what the first African-American and first black woman anywhere to summit Everest feels about the achievement. There's this sort of weird pressure around it where I, I think a lot of me just wants to be like a boring, normal climber. You'll hear from the world's first candidate for a head transplant, or would it be a body transplant? Definitely for me, it's a body transplant because I preserve my head, I preserve my mind, my experience, my consciousness. And when teachers and students of a special education school in the UK were preparing to beat the world record for the tallest stack of hats worn for at least 30 seconds, how did they figure out how it's done? We realized there was actually a good technique. We tried a lot, didn't yeah. we? We discussed it a lot, so we're never going to quite let that out, are we? No. I'm Kyone Wolf. Stories about tops. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and today, the theme is tops. The top of your body, the tippity-top of a mountain, and a very, very tall pile of hats. You'll find out why one man in Florida was on track to be the first person in the world to transplant his head on a donor's body. We'll also find out why that hasn't happened yet. And you'll meet two teachers and a student from a special education school in the UK who beat the world record for tallest stack of hats worn on a head for more than 30 seconds. But let's jump right in with the first African-American and first black woman from anywhere to summit Mount Everest. Sophia Dannenberg of Seattle, Washington, connected with me way back in January of 2021. And I wanted to know, when did she realize that she would embody these firsts? Well, but I think probably the first time it really got brought up was when I arrived at base camp. But in order to get a permit, um, you actually have to send in like a passport photo, right? So if they didn't know before, they knew when I sent in my passport photo that I was black. Will you take me to the final couple hours of your climb to the top? I understand that the weather conditions weren't really easy. Yeah. I mean, I kind of have to take you back to like the, from camp four, just, <laughs> so I was climbing with Panudu Sherpa, but the way that this is set up, Panudu was, they call the, the title like personal Sherpa, which I think is misunderstood because it doesn't mean like he's personally carrying my stuff. He's not like Sherpa in the sense of Porter, like Sherpa is in the Sherpa people, right? That's his name. Last name is <laughs> you basically hire them when you're climbing, climbing by yourself just so that you're not climbing totally by yourself. So you're not actually like alone on the mountain. So by the time we got to camp four, we had, you know, this storm was coming in when it was supposed to be clear and it had come in that day. And so the people who had gone up the night before were in trouble. There were several rescues that were being formed and it looked bad. So um, I went to sleep you know, thinking, you know, talk to Panuru, we just, the weather was bad, the mountain was chaos, that we were just going to go down the next day. And this isn't like other mountains where you then go back up and try again. Like you have kind of, once you get to camp four, the way that you use your oxygen and also sort of depleted a lot of your sort of 
stores physically, you, you go to Camp 4 and you go to the summit generally and you don't, or, or not. <laughs> like if you don't, if you don't go to the summit, then you, you, you don't summit. Like there's not a second chance once you go to Camp 4. So we decided we weren't going to go. Um, Panudu um, had thought that he might go assist with some of the rescues and so, which he wouldn't, which he couldn't do if he was going to be going up with me the next, that night. Cause you go up, actually you go to camp for the day and then you're supposed to leave at about 9 PM that night to start for the summit. So, um, I went to sleep thinking we'll wake up the next morning. I'll hear about how the rescues went and then we'll go back down. Instead, what happened is a couple hours after we were supposed to, we would have started about 11 PM, 10, 11, Panudu is like banging on my tent and saying, you know, it's clearing, it's clearing. I think we should go. We should, I think we should go. So, you know, Panudu's been on the mountain like 10 times. He's, he's like, really, I was like, if he thinks we should go and let's go. And Panudu is insisting that we push pretty aggressively. <laughs> yeah, you're late, right? Um, yeah, I mean, we we're about two hours late. We we're pushing as pretty much as fast as is reasonable. And we're passing everybody, breaking trail, me and Panudu, just the two of us. And, uh, and it's, this is a point called the balcony. Um, we're calling down to base camp and they're like, not the weather, the weather, like, it's not good. Like, but the weather where we are at the balcony is fine. Like, it's totally clear. We can see all the stars above us. We can see clouds below us. And we had clearly climbed above the storm. And at this point we were over the storm. Um, and it was clear in this time, another Sherpa arrives, um, who was actually just carrying, um, oxygen for another team like and he um he wants to go to the summit and asks if he can go with us and so the three of us Mingma, Panudu and I decide okay we're gonna do it we're gonna go to the summit so we're I'm really I'm psyched to have Mingma with us I'm psyched that I suddenly have a third person that I you know wasn't expecting um uh, who's very strong and capable. And so, and he had never been to the summit. So he's pretty excited for his first summit. Um, if, you know, if we made it. And so the three of us proceeded um, together and you, you sort of go up, you get to a place called the self summit. And then you go to the sort of, there's like a ridge that you have to be on. And then um, there's a very famous feature called the Hillary step, which is essentially a vertical rock cliff. Once we get to the Hillary step, then there's a lot of rope. In fact, there's too much rope. <laughs> there's so much rope on the Hillary step. I don't know if some of this rope has been here for a decade. Like it, a lot of it's clearly not in very good shape. And then, yeah, once you get the Hillary step, then it's a straight shot to the summit. Um, it is very windy. And then we just, you know, we got to the summit and it was just the three of us. And it was like a few flurries here and there, but really clear. And, you know, the, Peaks of all the other mountains are coming up from the mountains, um, from I mean above the cloud there, and it's different from other mountains because, like normally when you're on the summit of mountains, you're actually looking at other mountains. Like I'm like always like well like right if you look at if you see a photo of somebody on a mountain, the view is the other mountains behind them. Like that's really the view, right? The actual summit is the whatever wherever they're standing is not that interesting. It's not because you're too close up for it to be interesting. Um, well, on Everest, right, there is sort of nothing behind you <laughs> because you're above everything. Um, everything that's beautiful is actually below you. Does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But I was so aware of it. Like, I was so aware of all of these things that, like, that were different from other mountains. And Was it disorienting in a way? I mean, it was, it was the thing that made it interesting. 
it was all these little ways that it was different that just made it an interesting climb. Like, because Everest is not this, you know, it's just, it's in so many ways, it's not, the elevation difference doesn't make it an interesting climb. It's it's not, right? The actual steps and the actual sort of from a micro level, it's all of these little things that um, I was sort of looking at and noticing and processing. And I think I was processing it with interest. And mostly I think that's all I could process because other than that, my only... My only other sort of thought was to get down. So you reached this peak in literal sense, and you knew back in 2006 that you would be the first African-American person and the first Black woman to summit Everest. In a way, that's that's wonderful. Like, that's amazing. What a great accomplishment. And at the same time, like, this just happened in 2006? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I also think like I go back and, and think now, like I would imagine there's a lot of mountains where I was the first black woman to summit because there weren't, I don't think I have to this day ever randomly run into another black person on a mountain, like climbing um, these days, hiking I do like, but you know, back then I, you know, it's like, I never even ran into black people hiking, but what's I think more notable is that I think the second black woman only summited last year you know, there was a huge gap there. <laughs> so do you, now that you are in this position that you've, you've, you've got a Wikipedia entry, right? You've, you've got, this is, this is, your name is synonymous with this accomplishment. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, you're automatically a role model. How do you feel being put in that position of being a role model? So it's, it's uncomfortable because I think I always just, you know, and especially I just think of myself as a climber and like somebody who hasn't done much with it. It's like, um, I do feel a little bit of an obligation because I feel like I, I have this thing, right? I, no one else is ever going to be the first. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of an obligation, which is uncomfortable for me because I don't think I don't, I just think of myself as sort of this boring, normal climber and a, and a very average one at that you know, Everest isn't sort of technically or in a lot of ways a very difficult climb to do, but um, it doesn't, you know, involve, you know, being a spectacularly good climber. <laughs> so um, there's this sort of weird pressure around it where I, I just want to be like, I think a lot of me just wants to be like a boring, normal climber. And I kind of a lot of times just wish I could just be that. Like, I think there's a lot of privilege in just being able to be average um, <laughs> and not, um, you know, and, and even when I was climbing, right, I, I think I was not taking it upon myself, but I think a lot of people of color who are climbing, especially black climbers, when you're the only person there, there is this sort of added pressure of feeling like you're representing your whole race, right? That like somehow you're representing all, if you suck, then like do black women just suck at climbing? Um, I never took that on myself. Like I was always like, Nope, if I suck, I just, I'm just me being bad <laughs> as an individual, just like many other individuals who are bad at things. The more I think about this sort of Everest thing, I think it it puts this extra pressure on me that I that I'm really uncomfortable with. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it to people. And I and I struggle with saying, you know, you should do something with that, but also feeling like Oof, I just wanna, you know come and go and be average and terrible just like everybody else if I if that's if that's who I am 
Or just let the accomplishment speak for itself and move on with your life. Yeah. And a lot of ways I have, like, I, I mean, I'm a very, like, I'm one of these people who does lots of things. Like I, I wasn't like fixated on Everest, right. I wasn't this person who was like, it is my life dream to climb Everest. Like, and because of the lack of attention to it, which I think was probably fortunate in a lot of ways, I just sort of moved on from it and did other things. Right. I got really involved in politics. I really like, um, locally more i think there's there are people who know me in seattle from from politics and they're somewhat surprised to hear about the everest thing years and years you know they've known me for years and they'll hear about this sort of in passing somewhere and they'll, they'll just be like wait what <laughs> like because they, they know kind of i'm a climber but like... is that surprise something in a way that you want like oh yeah also i was the first African-American to reach the summit of Everest. But look, I do all this other stuff too. I'm more than this one thing. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't even, I don't even think I am that thing. I'm like, I, um, fundamentally um, I'm more, I'm like, it is like so much of my identity being a climber, but like I said, locally, I'm really known as like a political, like as a, as a political person. And and the most, and by the way, the most like not cool version of a political, I'm a, I'm a rules person. So like the, the most pedantic, like the, the rules and the policy and like all of the most mundane details, like Robert's rules of order and running, like that, that's like, you know, parliamentary procedure, like that's, well, that's like what people know me for locally. So like, you have to think like the surprise being like, wait, that like Robert's rules of order, parliamentary procedure um, person is also like an Everest climber, like what? <laughs> like. <laughs> You contain multitudes, Sophia. Yeah. So I and again, I think like if the Everest thing had become a big thing right away, that might not have happened. Mm. Like I might not have just been able to just sort of go on and do the next thing. I'd like to hear more about what that feeling is behind firsts. You know, like you summited Everest in May of 2006. And what we were just saying, you know, it took that long to be the first African-American and first black woman to summit Everest. What else does it feel like, that tension between great and also really? There's first, there's sort of an exhaustion, right? Of like, you, like you said, there's this idea of like, really there's that first just happened. Um, and there are firsts that still haven't happened. Um, and I, and you know, there's somewhere I don't, you know, like, um, you know, Obama, Kamala Harris, like these are amazing firsts to me that really, I celebrate and don't have any sort of feeling of, you know, I, th- I think I might have more feelings about women. And that's like, I was like, oh, with Kamala, like, you know, right, there's this too. Like, I'm I, like, uh, with the fact that, uh, how is it possible that she's the first woman? I mean, modern society, my goodness, America's behind. But in terms of being the first Black woman, like that, I don't, like that does to me is not exhausting. Like, that's amazing, right? I, I, I can't explain the two sort of sides of my head. But then I'll hear of other ones, like, uh, you know, somebody was campaigning, and I and I think that there still has not been this first, which is that she was campaigning for a statewide position here in Washington State, and it had been brought up that there had never been an African American elected to a statewide position in Washington State. Not not like, and I don't mean like senator. I mean, I mean like nothing. Not like, not like commissioner of public lands, not public instruction, um, not secretary of state. Like any, there's not been a single African-American who has been elected in a statewide position here. Like that's, that is exhausting. And that is unbelievable to me. It's, it's sad. I think that when there are those firsts, I hope that it speaks to change in our society 
And I, I had hoped, you know, for me, I, I, and I've said this, but I don't think of my climbing Everest as sort of an achievement. I don't really care if anybody climbs Everest. It's a, it's a recreational activity, but my hope is only that it was sort of a leading indicator to climb Everest. You need all of this money and resources that you need um, leisure time and you need this sort of freedom to spend your leisure time in this way. Um, I, I think people have to remember that like, you know, my age were sort of the first generation of sort of the post-civil rights era. Like our parents were all in the thick of that. Um, and there's a lot of pressure to accomplish a lot in our lives. And um, professionally, right, to become doctors and lawyers. And if you get this money, you get this opportunity, you go to college. I went to Harvard, right, to really accomplish things. That actually might keep you away from, like, wasting your time climbing mountains, um, right? That doesn't get, you don't have that freedom to spend your leisure time in that way, whereas I did. And my hope is that this next generation, my niece and nephew's generation, and I think it's coming around that this activist generation is feeling like they should be able to spend their leisure time doing anything they want, um, <laughs> you know, and um, claiming their space, all of these spaces. Um, but I do think that we'll see a change. And my hope is when that happens, a lot of these first will just start getting ticked off really fast because people will just spread out. You won't have to just be doing these few activities that are like the respectable ones that get you this, that, or the other thing. but all of this like silly things that everybody does like every, like that you're just going to see african americans in all of them sophia dannenberg thank you so much for talking with me thank you so much our conversation was recorded in january of 2021 when we get back i was thinking and researching and uh, what i came up with was the surgery of uh, swapping the whole body. Why one man would like his head to be transplanted onto a donor body. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. From the depth of the Pacific to the height of Everest Still the world is smoother than a shiny ball bearing Take a few steps back Put on a wider lens And it changes your skin And your sex and what you're wearing Distance shows your silhouette To be A lot like mine Like a sphere Is a sphere And all of us been here all the time Yeah, we've been here all the time This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, Tops is the theme of our show. Later, you'll meet two teachers and a student from the UK who broke a Guinness World Record for the tallest stack of hats worn on a head for more than 30 seconds. But right now, the kind of top we're talking about is the top of the body. Val Spiridonov lives in Florida, but he's originally from the former Soviet Union. He has a rare disorder, Wardnig-Hoffman disease. It affects his nerve cells and muscles, so most of his body below his head is immobile. When we connected back in May of 2021, 
I asked him to describe himself and the condition he's been dealing with his whole life. So uh, SMA is a spinal muscular atrophy, uh, which means that you have really, really weak muscles. You uh, are not able to walk uh, by yourself. You're not able to lift uh, objects, basically any objects, maybe just a, a really light one, like a phone or whatever. Particularly, um, I am able just to operate my uh, computer, my uh, mouse, and my wheelchair. So that's basically it. I'm able to feed myself, but uh, on the rest of the uh, daily routines, I rely on people I hire, on people I am um, uh, close with. So uh, it's pretty um, uh, heavy disease, which makes you really, really dependent on other people. And uh, it's kind of depressing, you know. And I was thinking and researching how to improve my condition, how to make it uh, uh, less heavy, less uh, to be less dependent on other people. And um, what I came up with was uh, some kind of uh, gene therapy and uh, more radical one, the surgery of uh, swapping the whole body. So this is not extremely new technology because uh, during the uh, early 50s of the previous century, there were lots of experiments made by uh, Russian uh, medics and later by American Dr. Uh, Robert White. Uh, they tried to swap bodies of uh, dogs and monkeys with uh, some level of success because um, at that, that time it was difficult to uh, suppress immune system uh, to make it not reject uh, foreign tissue. Um, so it was impossible to connect nerves as well. So uh, it was problematic to make the new body uh, operate its organs, operate muscles. Uh, it was a, it was possible just to connect uh, blood vessels and to support uh, some sort of life uh, for a limited period of time. So at some point, you find a doctor who says that he can do. It. And would you say it's a a head a head transplant or a body transplant? I... Uh, it depends on your point of view, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, definitely for me, it's a body transplant because I preserve my head, I preserve my mind, my experience, my consciousness. Um, yeah, it was not like I found a doctor. It was uh, a TV show or actually a news report where Italian uh, doctor Sergio Canavero uh, mentioned that he has got the key for this entire technology uh, the key which allowed him to basically reconnect the uh, neural uh, systems like spinal cord with uh, the brain so that it could transmit the signal of uh, moving an arm, moving a leg. So uh, the whole uh, point of the surgery uh, became like um, real. And uh, this doctor was uh, proposing that this kind of surgery could be possible uh, in several years. 
So uh, from my experience and from experience of the history, I totally understood that this doctor needs uh, to be uh, supported, supported on the media side, supported on the public side, supported on the financial side, because uh, his uh, predecessors, like Dr. Dimikhov and Dr. Robert Weiss, they were not um, supported by public because a public thinks really conservative about this kind of uh, treatment. Uh, even even if like regular organ transplant is kind of accepted by public, but when you talk about body transplant, it's like uh, really really uh, freaky one. Yeah, it's hard for people to wrap their. I'm sorry, there's going to be so many puns mm -hmm. for people to wrap their heads around. Absolutely. So um, I thought that my mission was to explain the importance of this kind of research to public to all over the world, because I understood that uh, it's not about uh, treating uh, myself only, but it's also about uh, developing a new form of treatment, a new form of drugs, a new form of medicine, uh, a supporting therapy for all kinds of patients. Because when you do a research of this scale, you uh, inevitably uh, develop uh, new ways uh, to fight multiple diseases, you know. So uh, new chemicals, new materials, uh, whatever. And uh, I spent like two, or maybe two and a half years traveling around, around the world, explaining to people why it is important to understand uh, the necessity of this kind of research. Um, I think I was successful to some point, how would the surgery work? Like you would be at home and you would get a call. Maybe there would be a car crash and someone can, and someone had a head injury and, but their body was fine. And you would go to the hospital. How, how overall would that work? Exactly. This was uh, the plan. Of course, uh, we were thinking about only the patient with a uh, uh, dead brain for some reason. Yeah. Like a car crash or a bike crash or whatever. It's, it's like a regular uh, organ transplant. Actually, you don't even have to invent a new uh, laws about it. You just take an existing laws and apply it to these kind of surgeries. Yeah, so the plan was uh, similar to what you explained, uh, but we didn't go too deep inside because no government uh, was able to uh accept this kind of treatments accept this kind of experiments because uh the public resistance was high enough yeah i read that if this had happened and they did the surgery and you died the doctors and people involved almost certainly would be charged with murder yeah absolutely uh but i i insisted that it was my own will it was my um, will to participate in this kind of experiment uh, because uh, anyways, these kind of diseases uh, and several other conditions, they are mm, not treatable with regular methods. And even today with uh, gene therapy, with uh, things like spinraza or whatever, um, this medicine is not uh, intended to cure 
grown uh, humans. It's intended to help uh, to babies only until three years old. So uh, right now we're talking about uh, the cases which are basically um, terminal. So th this is the only way to uh, treat them. Was there a feeling of desperation in that? Yeah, so th th this is kind of depressing. However, in my particular case, uh, I feel pretty stable, although I know that uh, the future is uh, maybe not so bright to me, but uh, I don't know the, the time frame yet. So right now I feel okay. I, I enjoy my life. I smoke cigars. Uh, yeah, so I feel pretty good and uh, I have a wonderful family. Well, let me back up for one second. If you were like out to dinner with some new friends mm -hmm. or just making conversation with people who didn't know that this was something that was important to you and you would say, yeah, I'm actually um, really excited about uh, being part of um, a body transplant. What kind of reactions would you get? The people uh, are pretty much excited about this because uh, everybody thinks it's a huge deal, you know, because nobody has done this uh, before, at least at this scale when you swap the whole body. Um, but people still think it's kind of freaky way to, to treat because of, um, it, it involves uh, like another person to to uh, like to, to donate his body to you basically so um it's weird and it's interesting and of course it, it opens new horizons for ethical discussions for uh, theological discussions yeah so lots of new uh philosophy um is behind this so people, of course, excited. People ask questions. People are wondering uh, what what pushes me to the risk of this level. What made you change your mind? Uh, this is the most interesting part for me because uh, it's not actually about changing a mind. Imagine you have uh, a spaceship on on uh, on the ground which is going to go to the Mars. But uh, this spaceship has only one uh, pilot passenger and only one engineer working on, uh, on making this happen. The spaceship has no fuel, the spaceship has, uh, uh, the spaceship has no any uh, other engineering uh, crew. Uh, and of course, it lacks a lot of other things on its way to Mars. So uh, imagine me as a pilot. Uh, I was prepared. I was prepared for the launch. I was going to go there. Uh, but it was just not ready. Uh, there was no uh, hospital which told us that, okay, you can uh, come up to our facility and we'll help you. We'll provide you with all the necessary equipment, whatever. Um, there was no people from governments uh, who could uh, say that, okay, we are allowed to do these experiments. Uh, so lots of uh, bureaucracy stuff, lots of law-making stuff uh, stopped us from doing this. And we never wanted to do this uh, in secret. Uh, 
we want this to, to be opened to the public because this is very important to public, in our opinion. It should not be covered, it should not be uh, done in some kind of secret laboratory. Uh, so it, it just could not happen yet. If you did have all you needed to have the surgery be an option, mm -hmm. would you say yes if you could now? Okay, so uh, this is, first of all, a scientific uh, way of solving a problem. So on, on your way to solving a problem, you do lots of experiments. You can sell it to a lot of other professionals in this field. And when you have a conclusion of multiple professionals that this is like 90% possible uh, and there is a chance that you would probably survive uh, this kind of uh, experiments, then of course, yes, we are talking about uh, something meaningful, something serious, uh, something which was tested one way or another uh, on, on animals or on, on dead bodies previously. So uh, only in this case, when everybody is uh, prepared and everybody is prepared to uh, multiple situations going around the surgery, then of course I would say yes. You have a wife now and a kid. Congratulations. Thank you. Have they affected how you think? about the possibility of this surgery? Um, I am extremely happy to have a family, first of all, and I am really lucky to have this beautiful woman and this really, really clever and uh, nice child. Uh, my son is two and a half years right now. He's totally healthy. I am happy that this uh, genetic condition was not passed to him. They made me uh, think more responsibly about my life. Uh, I know that they expect me to do responsible moves, uh, but they are extremely supportive, of course. And they understand that I do uh, things which I believe are necessary only. And we are talking about things that which are helping not only me, but uh, the mankind itself. So. It also is just so cool, right? I mean, it's the stuff of sci-fi books, right? It's the stuff of <laughs> science and fiction movies. Exactly. It's, and that's that's the other part of it that I find really fascinating is, you know, organ donation and organ transplants is amazing. Every story about it is amazing just because of the symbolism of it. And yes. isn't this cool that we can do this? But yes. this is truly next level in, in terms of scientific and medical advancing. You, and you would, you as Val would be a name people would know forever. You'd be this trailblazer in this Thank you. adventure that we'd be on. I mean, is is part of like, oh cow, I could be I could be the first. Is is part of that the appeal too? I never was uh super excited to be public person, no. It just <laughs> happened. Uh I am a nerd, I am a hacker. I am a security architect in one of the really, really big companies right now. So uh, publicity <laughs> is not something that I am <clears throat> got used to. 
I feel really, really happy working with computers, working with software. Um, just something which what I have to do uh, to explain people the other side of my life. Val, thank you so much for talking with me. Of course. Thank you. You can read more about Val Spiridonov at ctpublic.org slash audacious. After the break, how did one classroom celebrate beating the Guinness World Record for the tallest stack of hats worn on the head for more than 30 seconds? A lot of shouting and a lot of, we did it! <laughs> I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The final segment of our show about tops it features two teachers and a student from the UK who achieved a Guinness World Record together with their class for the tallest stack of hats worn on a head for more than 30 seconds. It all went down at Northgate School and Arts College in Northampton. And in this conversation, you'll meet Hannah Neville. She was the student who stacked the three-foot, four-inch-tall blend of 15 baseball caps, woolly hats, and top hats on top of Leanne Underwood's head. Leanne is the teaching assistant whose daunting job it was to keep steady during stacking, and for 30 seconds after, Julie Lee, the class teacher who helped organize the effort, joined us too. First, I asked them to describe what's so cool about their school. So we are a secondary school, so we cater for um, pupils who are 11 to 19. We do have a, a sixth form site as well attached to us, and all of our students have severe and complex needs. So ranging from just normal severe learning difficulties, autism, uh, Down syndrome, Lot, yeah, yeah, lots and lots of uh, a broad spectrum of disabilities and learning difficulties. Now, how did the idea for breaking this world record come to be? <laughs> we uh, were doing um, a topic and the topic was to do something to enhance our community. Because of the pandemic, we couldn't go out into the community. So we thought lots of different ideas, but most of them involved going out into the community, which obviously we were prevented from doing so. And so we sort of narrowed it down to our school community and what we could do to make it better. And one of our wonderful students came up with the idea of breaking a world record. Hmm. And so why hats? Because there's a lot of world records you could break. I, I understand you're very powerful <laughs> we people. We did ask ourselves that a few times. <laughs> Once we were practicing, we were like, we've got the right word. <laughs> You tried um, one with socks. You tried one with socks? Yeah. yeah. So we, we tried, we, we thought of a couple and we thought of ones that we could, we wanted them to be achievable, obviously. Um, and we tried wearing the largest amount of socks in 30 seconds. <laughs> and <laughs> it was a complete disaster. Yeah. And a few blue feet. Yes. <laughs> Some people were like, no. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, we were in danger of injuring the children, so we stopped. Okay, you followed your instincts and went to the other side of the body. Yes, the other extreme, yeah. Yeah, so we looked at the hats one and we thought, well, possibly if we got the right type of hat and 
if we could get the students to sit, sit still for, for long enough, which is always a challenge. <laughs> for every child in existence, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then so we began practicing and thought, we could probably, we could probably do, do this. <laughs> now, what was the record before that you were trying to break? And what, what there had to be some sort of a time limit. Will you tell me some of the, the, the constructs you were working with? So the record before was 100.3 centimetres. Um, and you had to, it's difficult because you don't know the rules until you actually apply to break the world record. So then you have to find out whether there's a limit on the, the number of hats or the type of hats. But as long as you, as long as the stack of hats is balanced for 30 seconds and it's taller than the last record, then you get the world record. And it has to be a stack. So it couldn't be one big hat. It's got to be a stack of hats. <laughs> <laughs> and where did you get the hats? Where did they come from? Uh, I surprisingly had a large yeah. collection of hats at home. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so we asked we asked the students to bring them in, but me and Mrs. Underwood, we had most of them yeah. between us, didn't we? Lots of fancy dress hats <laughs> yes. came out. There was <laughs> lots of ones that had lots of stories behind them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was good fun. But we did actually decide that we would order a few top hats because we thought that they might help us. <laughs> yeah. Hannah. When you were in the room for this experience, did you think we're going to break this record 100% or did you have any doubts? Uh, I don't really have You knew we were going to do it, I you? knew we were going to do it. You can do it how many times? You don't, it's not just one time. No, but we couldn't keep going for weeks and weeks. No. We had to. <laughs> it was on that. Yeah, we did have to do it on that day because we had to have lots of official people in, didn't we? Yeah. Um, to verify the record, you see. So we had to, we couldn't just keep going on different days. It had to be at that time. Yeah, we, on practiced. That date. we yeah. practiced for a few months beforehand. We had a lesson a week where we practiced and made sure that we were pretty close. Yeah. And then we had one day set where we had to have the official attempt and that would be our, our one go at getting the record. Hannah, was there one hat that you really liked the best of all the hats <laughs> in the stack? Uh, not really. I liked the purple shiny one. Yeah, like, I'm sure we use that. Yeah. <laughs> so when the day came to achieve this feat, how did you feel, Hannah? Uh, I was scared a little bit, but most of it was happy and excited. When the person from Guinness was there to witness and measure and time and make sure everything was perfect, did you achieve the record right away or did you have to do it a couple times? It was a couple of times we did it. Were you ever worried that you wouldn't? Uh, not me. Oh, she had faith. <laughs> we were I, was, I had faith in the And we had, um, we had an, a bit of an audience from the rest of the school yeah. as well. So it, it got quite exciting. Yeah. And then we had um, people had made banners for us and um, they were all cheering for us, weren't they? <laughs> and, and Hannah did have a really special job on the day. Tell me about it. Because we've got a class of nine, we all took it in turns, but you can only have, have one, one person. person to sit and one person to stack. No. So even though not every child was involved, they were all involved somewhere along the way. And the day Hannah ended up being there. So I was she, the one who. So you stacked, stacked the she stacked the hats. 
How did you stay calm? Because if I had to stack the hats, I would be afraid that my hands would be shaking. Were your hands shaking? I don't think so. I don't know. I couldn't see because I had a lot of hats yeah. on my head. So I, I think you look. were just really excited, weren't you? <laughs> when we did it, I just jumped up and down. She's very excited. And <laughs> she, she had to climb up to get my ladder. I didn't have to climb on that ladder. We had to get a step ladder out. <laughs> I bet the whole world looked different from up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, all right, now the moment we've all been waiting for is, is this one. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Yay! Hang on, hang on, hang on, we've got to measure it. Will you please tell me how it felt when the moment came and you made the record for the tallest stack of hats? Really happy and really excited. Really, really good. How did you celebrate? A lot of shouting, wasn't it? <laughs> and a lot of hugging. A lot of hugging. <laughs> A lot of shouting and a lot of, we did it! (laughs) So if someone wanted to beat your record, how would you feel? We're not going to tell them all our tips, are we? No. We we do have some tips. Yeah, because it got very technical towards the end of our our couple of months of practicing. We realised there was actually a good good technique. We tried a lot, didn't we? We discussed it a lot, so we're never going to quite let that out, are we? No, it's staying in Because <laughs> the balance, we found quite a few things, didn't we? Yeah. And every time we accomplished it, we were like, we think we've got this. <laughs> yeah. We think we've got this. This is it. We've done it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that this experience has changed your level of confidence the next time uh, something seems a little bit tenuous? Mm. So what she's saying is if you... So we... It, we were quite nervous, weren't we? And yeah. at the start, we were thinking when we first started and we had those just a few hats and we thought, hang on, this is this is a lot long. This is a lot taller than we originally thought. Yeah, we thought. And we thought, are we going to be able to do that? So that feeling of when we actually did it, does that help you think? Sometimes when you think, oh, I really can't do that. You, you could look back at the record and think, do you know what? Uh-huh. I could do it. Do you think that? Yeah. Yeah, we think that. <laughs> If I wanted to break a record, not yours, I would never try to break your record. (laughs) Clearly very difficult. But if I wanted to break a a record that someone else has of something else someone did, um, and I'm not sure if I could do it, what would be your advice to me? What should I keep in mind? How can I keep my spirits up to try to break a world record that's not yours? Just keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep Keep going. Keep practicing. Practice. Practice and practice. Yeah. After the cheering died down, what were people saying? They were just happy. They were really excited. And because it takes so long, um, Miss Lee worked really hard because you have to send a lot of evidence off. A lot. A lot. (laughs) And it took us a long time to actually officially get, yes, you definitely did it. So, yeah, we had some nice um, shiny certificates, didn't we? And, Not and it and it made it. We lived it again, didn't it? It made yeah. it really nice. Yeah. We had, assembly, we we had an assembly, assembly, and everyone was really excited. And we've got one that can be um, at school all the time, so we'll, we'll go down in history as well, won't yeah. we, with the school. <laughs>
<laughs> Beautiful. Are there any other records, Hannah, that you want to break? Uh, I don't know. No, we did look at quite a few, and we are thinking now that now that the school's achieved one, we might be able to do another one. So we're we're kind of thinking we might try another one next year. But unfortunately, Hannah leaves to go up to the sixth form yeah, this year, this so year. it will be with a different group. Well, Hannah, I'm so excited for you and so proud of you and so impressed. Um, Do you think that maybe for the rest of your life, you will just keep breaking new records? Yeah. (laughs) She's definitely got the positivity to do it. She's one of our most positive students. So, yeah, I'm sure she can. Yeah. And maybe Northgate will break the record for the school that's broken the most records. There you go. That would be lovely. (laughs) It would be amazing. (laughs) Hannah, I feel like your spirit is so bright and strong. Regardless of this conversation about breaking records, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on how to make the world a better place. I know that's a lot to put on you, (laughs) but I bet you've thought about this a lot. If the world could be different for you, how would you like the world to be different? There's more people being positive and not angry at people for Well, Julie Lee, Leanne Underwood, and Hannah Neville, thank you so much for talking with me and congratulations. Thank you. Bye. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, and Katie Talarski with help from our courageous interns, Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows about things like people who have an ultra-rare condition where they're able to remember almost every day of their lives as if it were yesterday, or when you've got the Guinness World Record for the largest female mouth in the world, what can you fit in it? Or you can find out what a runner's high feels like when you're 105 years old and other stories from Audacious Elders. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. You know what? Your tops for listening. Thanks. Thanks.